Howdy, y'all. You're listening to the Managing Up Show. I'm Travis Weisgood, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brandon Hayes and Nick Means. Hello. Howdy, y'all. So we've been talking over the course of the last week about a very important relationship that almost every engineering manager out there has, and it's the relationship with product uh, and whatever form that takes in a given company. Uh, I think we've all been around long enough that we've had some really good relationships with product managers and some really rocky relationships with product managers. And uh, we thought that there were likely some interesting conversations that would come from talking about how that relationship has worked sort of at the various places that we've worked over our careers. Um, So I guess to start us off, what are some of the fundamental things that make for a good relationship with a product manager? Oh, some of the most productive things that I've seen, a collaborative relationship where you're working back and forth, um, where there's not a definitive line, which ends up turning into a definitive wall between product and engineering. A lot of times you see those as two completely separate disciplines. They have completely different skill sets and your product manager does product stuff. Your engineer does engineering stuff. They have a one or two weekly meetings and that's about it. That's the end of their collaboration are those formal meetings, making sure that that's a constant back and forth. The lines in the most successful places that I've been have been really blurry as to who's doing product, who's doing engineering work. There'll be times when it, when you're getting really deep into the weeds on technical stuff where an engineering manager is really going to be the, the right person to, to have the point of view in that conversation. And there's going to be other times when it's really deep in the weeds about the user's end goals and what they're trying to get at, which sometimes that, that takes the, the slightly more business focused mindset that an engineering manager may or may not have. Uh, they might not have that experience to even have that frame of reference. So having a relationship where that who's driving the, the car can switch between the two based on what the needs are. That's the most successful relationship that I've been a part of when I've done that. And it hasn't been a, there's one person driving now and then we're going to switch and there's somebody else. It just happens organically uh, because there's such a tight feedback loop between the two of them uh, that they're working together as one person, but bringing multiple skill sets to it. It's almost like a pair programming of what should we be working on? It's hmm, a good way to put it. I definitely agree with that sentiment. And though it kind of rests on the fact that we all kind of have a shared idea or definition of what the responsibility of a dev manager is and the responsibility of a product manager. Fundamentally, I think the idea of what a dev manager does, people have more of a concrete idea of what that is. I think product seems a little bit squishier. And so I'm, I'm curious to know in your experience, what is the job? What does a product manager do in relationship to a dev team? I think I have to disagree, first of all, with the idea that everybody has sort of this agreed upon definition of what an engineering manager does, because I, I, okay, I don't know that I buy that. Okay, okay, fair. <laughs> it just seemed a little more solid than product manager, and but I, I think it, you're right. There's plenty of squishiness there, too. Maybe. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think the squishiness there comes in the effort to draw a bright red line between what an engineering manager does and what a product manager does. I, I think that... I almost to throw back to what Travis said, I almost feel like that's a bit of an anti-pattern to try to lay down a specific line of demarcation between what the two roles do. Um, But what I've seen the most productive product managers do is focus really in depth on getting the voice of the user, doing user research, understanding the customer in depth and bringing that context back to the engineering team in a digestible, actionable way where it's something that the engineering team can easily take on board, can use it to inform their work, can use it to 
help prioritize so that it's not all the product manager doing the prioritization. It's a collaborative effort to prioritize. But in order to do that, the product manager has to bring that customer information to the table and the engineering manager has to bring the state of the system information to the table, how difficult a particular implementation is, technical debt that already needs to be dealt with, that sort of thing. Yeah. And before this podcast, you shared something with me. I think you and I talked a little bit before the podcast about this idea and how there isn't a bright line of demarcation between the two roles, that there's overlap. And Laura Hogan did a really great job of laying that out in this sort of Venn diagram between like what an engineering manager does and what a product manager does and what various other roles involved in the process of creating a software product, what we all do. And yeah, there's a bunch of squishiness in the middle. I had somebody explain this to me in very simple terms once, and I kind of liked it. They said the product team's job is to tell you way over here what we want as a business. We've talked to the customers. We've done some research. We've filtered their feedback. We've done a bunch of homework and and been pretty disciplined about our approach. And we think we know what the customer wants. Here's what we want to do as an organization to give the customer what we think they want or what will move this business forward in some way. So on one side, you have what we want. And on the other side, you have what we're capable of actually doing. Here are the skills that we have. Here are the resources and people that we have, the materials that we can bring to bear to make that happen. And then you have this thing in the middle happening that's a little bit mysterious, but it involves a product manager and involves engineering managers sort of negotiating around that and saying, what's the best way we as a team can collaborate to figure out how to connect what we're capable of and what we want in the best way possible. And that's almost inherently a squishy process. But I have seen that generate real concrete results that move a business forward. I've had the good fortune of working at teams that have a, a really strong product management organization and design organization and have those as separate and distinct entities. And I've always seen that relationship as there's the, there's three phases getting up to the execution point. And each one of those disciplines sort of takes an ownership of, of a piece of it. And the other, the other two support each of them through those phases. And in my mind, it starts with product management and answering like, why are we doing what we're doing? Can we explain what the problem is that we're trying to solve? Some ideas on how we might go about solving it, but but really delineating why we're coming in and working on this problem to begin with. And then design can take that over and really hone in on, okay, what is it we should build? And the design research disciplines really help iterate on that and doing the user research and trying to, to really understand what it is that we we should be building and then engineering taking the output of that and saying okay well, we know what we're going to do how are we going to go about doing it what's the actual execution of this but any one of those phases can't happen in a vacuum you can't have design going off and greenfielding uh, something and coming back with it. it's like okay that's great the laws of physics don't work that way. We can't make this actually a thing. So they need the voice of engineering to come in and, and kind of help rein that in a little bit. And oftentimes offer the, hey, that's really interesting. But if we look over here, like we can change tactics just a little bit and do this other thing where we're talking about a six-month project here. This other one is a six-week project or a two-week project. And likewise, you need product in that that middle conversation to actually help drive, are we still answering the problem? Or are we just doing something interesting? That is one of the conclusions you can come to starting from the, this is the problem we're solving. But having them constantly reinforce the, are we solving the problem we set out to solve in the first place? 
But I think you're dead on, Brandon, in that there's not definitive lines. And people really like definitive lines. Uh, People like certainty. I think this is where, when I've witnessed these relationships go afoul, it's when one side or the other, or one part of the the organization is trying to get some certainty that isn't there and trying to, to enforce that certainty when it has no place in the conversation. Yeah, that's a good call out. I I think that's one of the struggles between engineering and product. It can turn adversarial so quickly. Mm -hmm. And so often when that happens, it it is because one side is demanding certainty. And it's very easy for us as engineering managers to point the finger. We we all know that, that product managers are the ones that demand that certainty, right? But is that always true? What are the situations where that would be reversed? Oh, I've only ever seen it be product managers. (laughs) <laughs> so so I will tell you that I've seen the inverse, which is you didn't define the stories carefully enough. And so once you start going down the rabbit hole of this di- division between engineering and product, the engineering team is pointing fingers at product saying, you didn't define the stories with clear enough acceptance criteria. Your mock-ups came back and they didn't handle edge cases. You didn't talk about the edge cases. And I, I will always stop those conversations right there and talk about the fact that we're not having a discussion that drives us toward waterfall style documentation as the best possible outcome. Cause that's where that leads is like, well, if you would deliver us a binder of everything that ever needs to happen, then we would have delivered you what you actually asked for. And so something happened in the middle where a product manager didn't get something that they had expected by giving whatever information and context they gave to the engineering team at the time they gave it. And if the engineers come back and their return volley is to say, well, if you had been better about specifications, my mind instantly goes to the type of binder based documentation system that led to like healthcare.gov's horrifying multi hundred million dollar quagmire launch. So I, I know that outcome too well to desire it. But I've definitely seen engineers kind of point the finger back. Yeah. I And I've seen that when you get into that situation where somebody's looking for like, okay, what went wrong in this process to see that, well, if you could just be better at estimating, we would be on time. So I've seen like you get to that point and you can have both of those conversations and both of it's coming from a frustration of, well, we were certain we were going to be able to do X, whether that was we were certain we were going to be able to deliver those features. And then when we dug in, oh, we can't actually do that because we don't know what we're delivering. Or the, we were certain we were going to be able to deliver these features at this time. And when we got into it, there was more going on. So now we're missing a deadline that we had set and promised everyone. One of my favorite things to do in these types of discussions is to find the edges and figure out the worst case scenarios on either side. And on one side where you have the the product team is too dominant, if you have a product team that is overly dominant, it is that thing where they're like, well, we don't want to give you those types of specifications, but we're going to expect those kinds of results. And I would ask anybody to raise their hand to if you've ever had an experience where you've had a product manager tell you, well, I expected that to come back pixel perfect. And this isn't what we had specified. <laughs> and hopefully nobody crashed their car raising their hand on that one. But I think we've all got that, uh, the experience of feeling like something has been over-expected or over-specified, and it wasn't really realistic. Hey, listen, people's names vary widely in length, and you didn't really accommodate for that in your spec here. Uh, You didn't give me responsive breakpoints on the front-end stuff, or you didn't give us enough information on how people are actually going to use this API on the back-end. You didn't account for edge cases or error cases. I think we've all been there where we felt like we were marching to a deadline that was agreed to before we were involved in the process. 
I think you brought up Travis earlier. There's this transition sometimes that people make from project manager to product manager. And there's often, I think, a lack of understanding of the wild difference between those two roles. And I've seen project managers that go into product management, try to do that job, which is suddenly not about just dates and making Lego pieces fit. And it's more about discovery and experimentation. Project managers are not set up for experimentation. That's not the job. So I've definitely seen a lot of pain in that arena where those expectations where you have a product team that is basically making demands of the engineering team. I heard an interesting term for that the other day that I'd never heard before. I heard it described as a service organization Hmm. where engineering becomes a service organization to the product management organization and is responsible for just providing service by building the things that have been specified to build. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at that point, you're becoming, you're one step away from an offshore development team. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not the type of organization I want to be a part of or I want to run. But when you get to the point that you're, here are the orders, I want you to take them and execute on them. I've told heads of product this explicitly. If this is the direction you want to go, that's great. You're paying way too much for the talent that you have right now. Like, let's outsource this. I'll help you transition. I'm not going to stay here for it, <laughs> but, but let's outsource this. Like why, why should we have onshore in-house talent that we're training up on domain expertise when you're coming in with a full specification and expecting it to be executed exactly the way that you you've envisioned and you're not giving any agency to the engineering team. So maybe that's an interesting theme for us to dig it on for a minute. What are, what are some productive things that an engineering team can do to bring value to the table from a product perspective? What are some of the things we want our engineers to do? Uh, One of the ones that jumps to mind for me that I always look for in those conversations is good laziness. Because engineers are really good at finding easier ways to do complex tasks that will still hit the same goal as long as they understand the goal. So I'm thinking in terms of the inverse of what I had just said, where the engineers come and say, hey, you underspecified this. And you talked a minute ago about over-specifying something so that you could hand it to an offshore team and have them do it. So I would tell an engineer who's telling their product manager things are under-specified, wow, be really careful with that. Because by the time (laughs) they've specified it to the point where your job becomes easy, the bad news is your job's real easy and anybody could do it. So part of the additional value you bring to the table is the squishiness, is the ability to take things that aren't super formally specified and dig in for more context. So what I would say along uh, with what you said, Nick, in addition to that, being willing to study the business aspects of what you're doing, being willing to understand the business case so that you have the context. And uh, some product teams are a little loath to give up that power a little bit because they're like, hey, we're the people that talk to the customers. We're the people that control the flow of that information. And I want to table that discussion for later, but mostly they're pretty friendly to say, hey, oh, you want to tag along for some user interviews? Okay, just keep your mouth shut or whatever. That's fine. Or you want to tag along for a sales call or you want to understand some context about how the business actually is benefited by the software that you're building. There's so much power and value in understanding the business context behind what it is that you're trying to build. And so rather than thinking in terms of JIRA tickets for what your job is, you can shift your thinking to the business value that's going to be generated. And then you can engage that laziness gene to 
be like, wait a minute, I could probably give you about 95% of that value in about 10% of the time if we just did this one thing. You don't have to do this whole circuitous system that you had designed. If you're not married to it, if you're married to the business problem we're trying to solve, I actually have this thing that lets you cut straight to it. And I've seen that multiple times with engineers on a team where they've cut months out of a delivery schedule and delivered most of the value. And, And the way that they do it intelligently is to say, hey, let's just try this as phase one. And if the securest thing is the right answer, we'll, we'll do that as phase three or whatever. And you never get to phase three because who's going to justify phase two and three for 5% more benefit? That's one of the things I was going to bring up. One of the most productive things an engineering team can do is ask, what's the experimental version of this we can do in 5% of the time and collect data to see if this is even the right answer before we commit to it and spend a lot of expensive engineering time on it? Both of y'all have hit on a point there talking about expense And when you start talking about expense, you're looking at it through traditionally the business lens. And I've, I've been called out for that before talking about, Hey, I want to work on this project. This is entirely an engineering driven thing. I'm talking to other engineering leaders and saying, Hey, this is what I want to do. And these are the reasons why I want to do it and justifying very, very technical work through the lens of here's the benefit to the business. Here are the bottom line things that we can point to show the rest of the team. And by team, I mean the rest of the the business and say, this is why we're spending this energy working on these things that may not seem like it's delivering quote unquote value to the customer because it's not a shiny new button that they can click on. And I've had engineering leaders call me out on my team and say, Hey, you're starting to sound an awful lot like a product manager. I'm like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Hang on just a second. We're all here to run a business. Uh, We're all here to make money. We all need to think about things like this. I think a good product manager thinks an awful lot like an, an engineering manager and the inverse is true as well. We can't just be doing stuff for the sake of doing it. Otherwise we're running a programming summer camp and programming summer camps are really fun, but you eventually run out of money with things like that. I think engineering managers that I've seen be successful in product organizations are product oriented engineering managers. Yeah, that's a great point. Not every engineering manager wants to have their hands deep into the product. Some engineering leaders are more oriented around being team leads and still want to spend 50% of the time in the code. And I'm not sure if you're doing that, that you have the time that you would need to have these kinds of conversations and have the business context that you need to bring to the table to be a product engineering manager. Have either of y'all worked in an an organization, and I'm sure this could be attributed to somebody even prior to them, but I've always heard it described as the the Evernote model, where you have a product organization um, and generally up to a head of product or chief product officer who is a former engineer themselves, but a product-oriented engineer. And then you have a head of technology or a CTO who is completely oriented around technical problems such as, how do we ship this? How do we deploy this? Uh, What's our uptime? What's our backup? It's all the technical, almost in a, a more traditional engineering org, like the DevOps infrastructure side of the house. But put that squarely on technology and put all things that that users interact with in the product space with very technical product managers all the way up to a chief product officer who's a former head of engineering. Have either of y'all worked in an environment like that? I would say I've worked in shades of that where you have unusually technical product management organization that are easier to negotiate with on things like technical debt and paying table stakes to be able to have continuous deployment and things like that where you know, they, they don't care necessarily about the ins and outs and the details, but they care about reducing the technical carrying cost of the software that you build. I've certainly had that. And that's really fun to work in. 
because your negotiations are relatively easy to have because they understand the basic tenets of that software is not cement and wood and bricks. That software is made of this stuff. It's like a sandcastle. It's constantly eroding underneath you that if you don't constantly kind of clean it up and shore it up, it will fall apart on its own. I've seen it, but I haven't seen it scale very far. I, I've always seen it in earlier stage startups where that those two functions roll up into the same person. And it seems like something that at least the companies that I've been part of look to grow out of fairly quickly so that they do have a dedicated person paying attention to technology and to product. They don't leave anything, any engineering resources rolling up to the VP of product or the chief product officer, whoever that happens to be. So I would take that and put that almost as a, a potential third place or a, a third path in this, this conversation where you have somebody fully focused on infrastructure and reliability, somebody fully focused on execution of product, and then somebody fully focused on product. I think th there's possibly three positions you can have. And I think at a certain scale, you're dead on. You have to have all three of those delineated. There's a quote. It's a, I think it's a clear blue day that movie about the guy swimming the, the English channel in his fifties. Uh, um, there's this one guy in there talking about like overcoming trials and things like that. And he mentions the rubies aren't, don't come out of the ground like that. It takes friction to actually polish them into the thing that is useful. And I, I've always found that that's the, the sweet spot for product and engineering. There's a little bit of friction between those two that actually turns it into the, the really smooth, well-organized, uh, well-operating organization because of that friction. I think to your point, Nick, early on, you try to minimize that friction. You're like, let's reduce all friction. Let's not have any friction. And at some point you have to grow out of that. And that can be a painful phase when you're going through that. Like we used to always get along. It's like, well, we're, we're still getting along. It's just, we both have different points of view right now. Um, and that can be a really tricky, uh, a tricky situation to navigate. Yeah. Well, and, and because I love an over-tortured metaphor so much, if there's too much friction there, you're going to grind the ruby plain away. It's not going to be there anymore. You're not going to have Absolutely. a functional relationship there at all. So it is, it's a, it's a delicate balance to walk. I like both of those ideas. One is that the idea of too much friction, I, I, I describe it differently. I've often and for a long time talked about the concept of healthy tension on teams. And what I love so much about what you're talking about, Travis, is that that shifts over time because when you have healthy tension in between a couple of people, that healthy tension happens in very high bandwidth situations and with very little energy behind these decisions and very little momentum behind these decisions because it's a person who could change their mind about something as soon as that other person changes their mind. But as soon as you scale that to departments... Now people's jobs rely on solving this problem. And if you just change the person's mind about whether that problem was worth solving in the first place, you have a whole department that has to change along with you. These things just don't scale that well and the pace of communication slows down. And so startups really can't afford the kind of politics and interdepartmental tension that you actually kind of need at larger and larger scales. So I think that's a really interesting point. I like the healthy tension that happens between respectful leaders in product and engineering. And you can see when product pulls too hard in one direction, engineers burn out. They feel disempowered because they're being told what to do. They're being told when to do it. Uh, I've seen product teams that tell you how to do it, use this tool to solve this problem because they're trying to control these outcomes. And for a time that may even work but it always backfires and it always disempowers an engineering team, costs you your best people and high quality engineering leadership wouldn't put up with that for very long. 
And then I've seen engineering teams that pull too hard in the other direction and get everything that they want. And I, I can't, how did you describe it, Travis? Oh, summer camp. Summer camp. Yeah. Yep. Hey, what did you build at summer camp? Oh, I made this really neat toy. Like, does it do anything? Nope. Yeah. Yeah. I've come into teams before where you were describing the engineering leadership and teams feeling uh, disempowered. I've come into teams where product feels like they have to beg, steal, and borrow to get an engineer to even look at their idea, much less commit to it. Mm -hmm. So I've seen the the inverse of that as well. We keep kind of going back and forth on this. I think that the one of the main points in a healthy uh, relationship between product and engineering is the balance between the two. If one side of that equation has too much say in what's happening, it starts to to unbalance it. And you can operate that way, especially at a smaller scale for a little bit of time. Uh, but eventually you're going to burn out engineers. You're going to burn out product managers who it, it's going to go back and forth between those two. If you don't find that happy medium between the the two tensions, I, I, I like your point about the the tension. I think that's a a really good metaphor there. Finding a good tension is about finding that equilibrium. It's not about pulling to one side or the other. If if one side is overtensioned, it's either going to break the band or just completely lopside the, the entire conversation. And I think that's really true in the conversation between product and engineering. If one party at the table has too much of a say, it can really lopside the entire conversation that, that you're having. To that point, especially in early stage startups, especially when you're going for that that flat organization, we don't want to have hierarchy. We're not going to have five layers of leadership and all of that kind of stuff. You end up with teams that really rebel against the the manager title, and these are the people who who tend to think of manager as you basically just import something from the Dilbert cartoon, and and that's what a manager does. But they'll they'll bring a product manager on board. And I've seen that relationship go a little south where you have a team of folks, you have a product manager, you have a team of engineers, a designer or two involved, maybe some QA, but the only person in that, that group of five or, or eight or 10 people that has manager in their title is the product manager. How do you balance that? When there's only one person that has manager in their title and we're all programmed, conditioned to think about manager as the person who's in charge of, of where we're going. How do you balance that in a team where maybe you're not big enough to have a, a quote unquote engineering manager or engineering managers across multiple teams, but you have a product manager that's intimately involved. How do you make sure that there's not a power imbalance and, and too much, too much deference to product the product quote unquote manager that might turn into the, these sort of power imbalances that we've been talking about where product is entirely running the show. I think a really interesting example to bring up here is stitch fix. I mean, they're, they're an incredibly consumer oriented company and typically you would build a big product management organization to interface with your customers and figure out what to build there. They got almost all the way to IPO before hiring their first product manager. And they did it by hiring product-oriented software engineers. I've always described that as having a bias towards wanting to build things that a user is interacting with or being a tool builder. Yeah, it's a question of who your customer is. Yeah. Yep. Well, in, in a large enough organization, you're going to have product managers that are internally focused as well, helping you build tooling for the engineering team. That's a thing that happens once you get to a certain scale. Yeah, speaking of product managers that are engineering-oriented, those people almost invariably have to be former engineers playing that role. Yeah. Super technical. Yeah. I've been in organizations that are large enough to have a developer advocate 
whose job was the majority inside. They're advocating for developers on the team. So I want to bring this back to how it is likely to affect a person who's managing in a day-to-day job. Somebody whose job is, I'm an engineering manager. I know there are challenges and problems between an engineering team and a product team that maybe don't always see eye to eye. Their communication tool of choice is usually Jira. And I think a lot of the challenges that come into this relationship aren't so much about the questions of what and how. Let's say a product team understands their job is mostly to think about what. And the engineering team's job is mostly to think about how. And uh, this Laura Hogan post that's very good and everybody should check it out. She talks about how the engineering manager owns the story of who. And then altogether, they own the story of why. That very much reflects my experience. But the problem and the challenge comes when you inject when. Who owns the story of when? I mean, I I think the question of when is ultimately wrapped up in the question of why. It has to be. Because why we're building it is ultimately going to inform when it needs to be ready. And I think this is a great time to bring up the idea of imaginary dates in software. Sometimes it's helpful to draw a line in the sand to get a team to rally towards building something by a certain date. But software engineers are great at smelling out when those dates are fake. Ooh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) So if you are in a situation where you are building towards a real date, then that makes it very easy to figure out the question of when. And then you're negotiating on scope. What can we actually deliver by that date? Because that's the only dial you have left at that point, scope and quality. But if you don't have that date, then you rely on having that healthy tension in a team to get them moving forward, making rapid progress, despite building towards an imaginary line in the sand, because there's no hard date that their work has to be ready. And you still have to find a way to have the scope conversation in that environment. That's the challenge. Because when there's no hard date to drive against, you still have to make intelligent choices around scope and how much is the right amount to build, what quality is the right amount of quality to build it at so that you don't end up churning forever on a certain feature. The question of when is much harder to answer when you're building towards an imaginary date. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I wish that every engineer could spend time working in an organization where the dates were hard. I spent what I what I call as my tour of duty in media and I had deadlines in that as a leader where 30 minutes was the difference between relevance or irrelevance. If you're building a platform for live streaming for a 30-minute thing and you miss the deadline by 30 minutes, you might as well not have had any of that work happen. And having that concept of a deadline is totally different than the vast, vast majority of engineering organizations' deadlines. It's like, oh, we're going to ship by this date, and absolutely nothing is going to change if we don't hit that date. Being able to have that relationship with a deadline, I think, is really useful to an engineer and something I would encourage everybody. If you haven't worked in an organization like that uh, and you're trying to think about your next career move, maybe try to spend a little bit of time. You can't spend a ton of time in this because it will burn you out, but spend some time in an organization where those deadlines are really hard. Um, and you don't have a choice because that'll really help you understand that the conversation around, okay, how good does this need to be? How much of this do we need to build versus using things off of the shelf? You really get into that constraints conversation, which is a very, very healthy conversation to get into. But for me personally, I had to have that forced on me by the outside until that point. It was always a theoretical conversation, which was fun to have and always try to work within those. But it was very theoretical until the All right, noon works, 
12.05, you've already kind of screwed up. 12.30, you might as well have been working on something else for the last six months. And I think the other interesting thing that that hard dates pull out of the realm of the theoretical is technical debt. Because when you're fighting against a hard date, you really do have this idea of, oh, okay, I am going to borrow something and do something a little hacky, a little kludgy here with the knowledge that I can circle back after the date and pay it off. And it does become that actual transactive mode of operating where you do take shortcuts to get to the hard deadline and you know you have to bake in time afterwards. I've been in situations where I'm sitting in a room with people who have worked overnight, all night, trying to get something working and they're pushing out the new build over and over again. And they're saying, try it now to a group of people who are showing up for work on their first day to use a new system that was, we're sure this new version that we just compiled five minutes ago and the build server just published it. This should work now. Okay, no, give us 10 more minutes. We're going to fix the bug that you just found that's keeping everybody from working. Everybody wait to log in and we have people on the other end in this, you know, the center, 50 people that are showing up for work to use this software. Can you tell that this was a startup, by the way? (laughs) I have definitely worked in those situations. And I think conversely, thinking in terms of diversity of work experience, it's good to work in other places. Now I work in a financial services company where dates are much more fungible than things like security. So understanding what that priority list is for your organization, hey, this is a media company, timeliness is number one. Hey, this is a financial security uh, services company, security is number one. So understanding what those priorities are and helping communicate that to the team so you can co-own it. Your point is really well made, Nick, that it is highly contextual. It has to do more with the values of the workplace than dates as a concept, who owns when is less important than what makes when matter here. Where does that sit on our priority list? When does roll up into the why? And I hadn't thought of it that way before. So we've talked a lot about the theoretical across a a whole wide of product and engineering uh, relationships and how they go back and forth. What would y'all's advice be for somebody that is negotiating this power dynamic for the first time uh, and trying to, to understand what their role is and push their organization in the right direction? So you keyed in on a phrase that I love talking about, and you know this, and it's the idea of a power dynamic. And in an organization that has a product team, the power dynamic that a lot of people don't recognize is that the product team often sees themselves as the gateway to the customer because they're talking to customers, they're talking to potential customers. Their job is to understand the needs and desires and value that this product brings to the customers. And so it's really important to make sure that engineering buys themselves a seat at the table to understand more of the why. And it's so easy to cede that power back to the product team and say, look, you just worry about why. You don't, like, just tell us what to do and you do the why. And that is how you wind up with a disempowered engineering team. My advice for managers just getting into this for the first time is to figure out how to partner with the product team on bringing the why into the team. And it may require selling the product team on why they should share that power with the engineering team, but it is the fact that we're all on the same team. Being able to communicate the idea, we're all on the same team, we're all trying to make something really cool happen for the same group of people, we're not going to be able to be as disciplined about gathering feedback from hundreds of customers and synthesizing it, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a seat at the table in terms of understanding who they are, understanding what motivates them, understanding the value that the specific piece of software we're about to build is going to have for that customer. 
Because once we do understand that, it is likely we have some technical knowledge that is going to save us time, is going to save us money, is going to save our customers frustration. And there's an upward spiral that comes off of that. The more that you allow the engineering team, almost you have to sort of force the engineering team to care about that stuff a little bit more than they might naturally, because it's the easiest thing in the world to just pull down Jira tickets and knock them out. This job is already hard enough without asking us to have to understand our customers. So encouraging the engineers themselves to get to know the customers and setting that up and encouraging the product team to be able to share that power. That's a hard job, uh, but I actually view that as a key responsibility of an engineering manager in a product organization. Yeah, I think an elegant way to sum that up is one of the key ways that as an engineering manager, you have to partner with your product manager is building buy-in on the engineering team. It's not something the engineering manager can do by themselves. It's not something the product manager can do by themselves. It takes a concerted effort between the two of them to bring that context to the engineering team about what the customers need, what the business needs, all of that context that a good engineer is going to care about as they approach their work. Now, you may have some maturing that you need to do of your engineering team to get them to the point that they do care about those things and they understand that there is more to their role than just pulling down JIRA tickets and writing code. And that's a team maturity thing. Sometimes you can hire some of that in if you don't have it. Sometimes it's a long haul to build it. Um, something to be mindful of. But I, I think that the most productive relationships I've had with product managers have been relationships where we consciously managed the buy-in of the engineering team and made sure that we were putting information in front of them that they needed to understand why the work that they were doing mattered. That is a, a key, key point that often gets overlooked, especially gets overlooked as you start down that slippery slope towards having a, a feature factory in your engineering team. Engineers need to understand why they're working on it. And, and I've worked with engineers who don't even know this themselves, but what we do is largely a creative process. And in order for that to be fulfilling, you have to understand why am I doing this? We're not working in a, a job that is a, a factory assembly line where you pull down this lever and it punches out this widget and it goes down the line to the next person to, to polish that widget. So applying as much mental energy as we do to the execution of our job, you have to understand why we're here, why we're working on this uh, in order to be able to get the fulfillment out of it. So I'll, I want to close with a quote that I've actually given to several product managers that I've kind of coached on how to work with engineers in the past. And it's a quote by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I don't know. I don't speak French, Nick, so you'll have to correct me on that one. But uh, it's tra it translates to, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. I wish we were doing this as a video podcast so everyone could see me and Nick starting to nod along as we recognize the quote that you were quoting. Yeah, I love that quote. <laughs> it's so key. It is. And it's it's one that I hear all the time and constantly forget about. So I'm glad you brought it back up. Yeah, it, it's one that if I, th I think about it at least once or twice a week lately, as I'm trying to sort of bridge that gap at work between engineering people and product people and seeing they're so close to making that connection. And if I could just get them to that point, you'd see the little sparks that fly out of that. And it's really cool. 
that's a really satisfying component of this job. I actually think we've probably gotten closer to the heart of what it means to be an engineering manager talking about this than in a lot of our previous podcasts, because there's lots more that we'll talk about, about coaching and stuff like that. But this is one of the places where the rubber hits the road and you can have the biggest impact on your team in terms of helping them turn a corner toward providing business value and become empowered, literally empowered within the organization where you have a team that just kicks ass in comparison to other teams. And people look at you and wonder, what are you doing differently? And we're like, I don't know. We just all care about delivering business value. Well, how do we do that? And it's like, it's not a formula. You just do these things consistently over time. I guess that's a formula. I don't know. Uh, but I find that work very exciting. And I, and I think if you do, you're probably set up for being a great engineering manager. Absolutely. All right. Well, that seems like a great place to close out. And I want to tell everybody listening to this, we always appreciate the feedback we get, the questions that we get. I am Brandon Hayes. You can find me at TevViking on Twitter. I'm Nick Means. You can find me at nmeans on Twitter. And I am Travis Weisgood, and you can find me at T. Weisgood at most places. And as always, if you like the show, the best way you can help us is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And if you have any questions or thoughts or suggestions, please do hit us up at Managing Up Show on Twitter. Thanks again for joining us. Have a great week, and we will see you again soon.